0: Hi, everyone. I'm Samira Daswani, the host of the podcast, The Patient from Hell. We have an incredibly special episode today. I have with me two guests, dialing in from the same place, Esther and Will, and they'll talk to you about what brought them here and how they're related to each other. So maybe let's start there. Um, Esther and Will, how do you guys know each other?
1: Um, Will's is my son
2: and and she's my mom.
0: Um, You guys want to talk a bit about what brought y'all here today?
2: Sure.
1: Um, I'll go first. Okay. So uh, back in 2015, um, my third child, Andrew, um, was one-year-old, and he was diagnosed with acute megakaryoblastic leukemia, AMKL, also known as AML7. Um, So he was one-year-old, and it was the worst prognosis you could possibly imagine. Uh, the doctors could not give us an example of one child who had survived this cancer. And um, the first thing, and actually to go back a little bit, he presented in a very unusual way. So for the first week of us being in, in the ICU, uh, they thought he had uh, stage four neuroblastoma. They actually had us with a different team. And then they had to do a bunch of different blood tests because he had masses um, surrounding his spinal cord. Um, so after a whole bunch of tests, you know, seven days in, in the ICU, they're like, actually, it's this other form of cancer. It's leukemia. Um, it turned out that his, uh, basically, uh, he was flooded with leukemia. And that's what swelled up his lymph nodes around his spine. So that's why it presented the way it did. So everything about Andrew's cancer was unusual. Um, from the first meeting we had with the doctors where they actually had accurately diagnosed the cancer, they said, you know, the only option is a bone marrow transplant, uh, that's it, which is normally a last resort procedure. Um, so, and I can talk about all the feelings that go along with being a parent that where all of a sudden you're hit with this. Um, they said, he has two older siblings, five and three. Wills was five. Um, we need to take them in immediately to test them to see if they're a match. So Wills was a perfect match. And that was the one real break we got in our whole story. And Wills donated donated his bone marrow to Andrew. Um, well, Andrew has mean. since passed. So I do want to make that clear too, you know, as we're moving forward and sharing our story. Um, but it was a story with lots and lots of ups and downs. Um, and in a lot of ways, you know, Wills' cells were our hero In the process.
2: Uh, Wills, how old are you today? I am 14 now, so it's been almost nine years uh, since the bone marrow transplant, since he passed.
0: And do you remember the bone marrow transplant?
2: Yeah, I, I don't have many memories of the time, but I have a few memories. And the bone marrow transplant is one of the few memories I have that's in the most detail, And what I mostly remember is at the time he was in an isolation room. So no one could visit him except my mom and doctors. And so I woke up really early, but after, and to do the surgery. And then after the bone marrow transplant, I got to go into the isolation room and hang out with him. And that, I remember that was a super awesome experience.
1: Wills and Andrew had been roommates and that was the plan. They were always going to be roommates. They were roommates in our home. And so, uh, when Andrew was diagnosed and you know, he was sick for a very long time. And I went to the doctors for a very long time and saying, something's wrong, something's wrong. And they'd always give me some reason. It was just a minor situation and send me home. But, um, Andrew was kind of taken from that roommate, um, duo, uh, brought to the hospital. We were actually there for a hundred days, total, over a hundred days, but around that, and, um, when he was in isolation for the bone marrow transplant, they did not allow any child under six to be in mm-hmm. that room. So that was like a whole new level. Mm-hmm. And Wills, I don't know how Wills, but he was so proud that he was gonna be this donor. And, and one of the, and he was able to do something that none of us, the doctors couldn't do, my husband and I couldn't do. He had this power to give Andrew more time. And Wills, you were really proud of the fact that you got to spend time in the room with Andrew. You got to hold his hand. Like that was, you were, you could not wait for that moment to be in the room because uh, up until then they put us in a room that was kind of toward the front of the hospital. So the kids would visit through the window. We would Mm -hmm. be on the phone and they would wave to Andrew. He'd be so excited to see them. And then we would just talk through our phones, you know, so that
2: we could hear each other. And I remember like, it was so awesome because it felt like I was able to do something and so much of this felt out of my control. And so it was really like, it almost felt like a gift to then Mm -hmm. be able to do something and then see him start to get better after the bone marrow transplant, which was something that was pretty unprecedented and somewhat unexpected. And being able to see on the other side of that window and, and step into that room and see the window from the other side was such a... A great experience for
0: me, and it was super, super enjoyable and happy. good. Yeah, it's powerful. Yeah, really. powerful moment. Wow i I feel kind of. I'm not normally a complete loss of words, but to hear you describe that world is. It's pretty remarkable. You have five. I can't think of that many memories when I was five that, I felt a loss of control, and then, I felt like I could do something about it that's such an incredibly foundational experience for you. Do you think about that often?
2: I don't I don't really when I look back, I don't remember much. And so that was one of the few experiences from when I was young that I really remember. And so when I think about Andrew, that is one of the few memories that keeps popping up again and again. And it's one of my happiest memories with Andrew because it was when I got to like hug him and hold his hand for the first time in three months, and so it was a big deal for me at the time. And looking back mm-hmm. now, it still is a big, it's a big memory.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's important to know too that you know many. I, I was told later by doctors and nurses that they didn't think that Andrew would be leaving the hospital, um, and. I mean, I can go into all the scientific details, but his cancer was not at zero. It, it, you know, they do all the, the rounds of chemo and they want to bring, they call it the MRD to zero and it wasn't there. But they said, you know what, it's, it's AML, you can still do a bone marrow transplant. It was low enough that they said, mm-hmm. you know, it was permissible, it was something that was worth trying. And uh, as a result of Wills' bone marrow donation, Andrew was able to have eight, nine months of life as a a kid. From diagnosis to the time that he passed away was two years. Um, So there's lots of ups and downs in betweens. And I don't know, you can ask me whatever you want about that period. Um, But something that was certain was that that bone marrow donation gave Andrew the opportunity Mm -hmm. to be a kid and to come home and to spend time with his family, to go to preschool Um, and for the
2: relationship of our family of five to grow. And one thing I will add about like the memories was a lot of my memories that I still remember with Andrew came during this period from after the bone marrow transplant through like we got to go to Hawaii on a vacation. And there was all these memories that were made that I I still have and some of like the most important and meaningful moments of my life with Andrew happened during that time. So it was a very, it felt very good to do the bone marrow transplant and start that period of time.
0: Um, If you guys are okay, can we go back before Andrew was diagnosed? I heard you say a couple of times that you knew something was wrong. You kept going to the hospital or the doctors and they would send you home with something minor. How did you know something was wrong?
1: Um, Okay. So I, this was now my third child. So I had seen a lot at that point. Right. Um, And my older two had not been getting sick, but basically, so Andrew was born completely healthy. He was on time. There were no issues. We actually have no history of cancer in our family um, at all. So that, and I know that's unusual. I look back and I'm like, wow, that is actually really unusual on either side. That you know there were not that wasn't part of our family story, you know there might be a few cases here and there, but it just was not part of our more recent family story, um, and so this was very cancer was not a place that my brain would even go, especially with a one year old, um, but basically at about eleven months old he started getting sick a lot, but we were on vacation I think he had some GI issues then he had. You know, stomach issues. And then he just wasn't right. He was grumpy a lot. Um, And then he'd have fevers on and off. So that was starting at about 11 months. Um, And then I just kept bringing him into urgent care because I'm a mom that does not mess around with this. And every time it was like, oh, it's a virus. It's a virus. It's just this little thing. It's that little thing. Then there was a point at which it was around Thanksgiving 2015. So at this point, he was born in September. So he was... uh, 14 months old, his belly started just getting bigger and harder and harder. Um, And he was still extremely uncomfortable. He, he could crawl, but he could stand for only short periods of time. And I know it was still within the window of when kids can walk, but he wasn't really moving forward in his milestones at that Mm -hmm. point. um, Because I feel like he was sick all the time. I was working full time but I would leave work. I'd take him to urgent care for this and for that. Um, by the time his stomach was so distended, um, I got all kinds of answers. He's uh, constipated. We did x-rays. We did multiple x-rays. They even did an ultrasound. Mm-hmm. And my doctor got back to me and said, the good news is we've there's no scary stuff over there. But they did note um, a few swollen lymph nodes. Now we know mm-hmm. they were flooded with leukemia. Um, it reached a point where it got really frustrating. I brought him to urgent care six times in one week, one time <clears> twice in a day. This was the week leading up to his diagnosis, and what I realized was I've learned a lot about the medical profession, and you know, medicine is about patterns. Well, I was going to urgent care. I was seeing a different doctor every time I went, and you know, they see a lot of. It's unfortunate that doctors tend to think that mothers overreact. They said, you know, he's a third child. He's getting sick a lot. His older, you know, his older siblings are in preschool. Although his older siblings were not sick. And I couldn't understand. I work in public health. (laughs) I could not understand the logic. I'm like, oh, maybe they had a germ on their clothes. He got the germ. I don't know, but they're not sick. So why are you saying he got sick from his siblings? Um, Ultimately, on like the seventh day of that week, um, they wanted me to give him an enema. I was like, he's, I don't think he needs one, but okay. You know, um, ultimately... I had to wake him up one morning and his body was pretty. He would wake up crying. I was like, oh, he just needs to be sleep trained again. Um, he just had no uh, muscle tone in his body this morning. I, I got really freaked out. I, I went right back to urgent care um, and I said to the doctor, look, like I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. You need to figure out what's wrong with my son. It's not what you've been telling me. I am not leaving this place until you figure it out. And so this urgent care doctor was a new one from the one I, ones I had seen before. She was like, okay, t- tell me the story of the last few months. And, and by the end of the time, I told her the story. And I remember she wrote it down on like that white paper on, the, on those little beds. And she was like, okay, I think you need to get some blood tests. I think you need to get blood tests that we can't provide. So go to the ER with him. Um, and I'm very thankful for that doctor because I am convinced had we gone home, he would have died that night. Because that night when we got to the ER, they sent him to the ICU. He was having a lot of trouble breathing Mm
2: -hmm. because his
1: belly was so distended and putting so much pressure on his lungs. Um, Yeah. And then we were straight to the ICU and we were there for at least a week until they figured out what was wrong. He needed nasal cannulas to help him breathe. And he was suffering tremendously. Um, And I think that's something that doctors... Can't, you know, you're, they're looking at you as a picture right there. And then when you're a parent and your child is suffering so horribly and he was one and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And the the helpless feeling that you have, that was why I was like, there's something wrong. I know something's wrong. Of course, I did not think it was cancer. Why would I think it was cancer? You know, um, that's like the worst thing that can possibly happen to a child. And it, it, no one thinks it's possible.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about intuition? And the reason I, I say that word, I, I say it very deliberately, actually, because there is pattern recognition that you're doing, there's pattern recognition happening, or no, rather not happening from the healthcare system in this case. But there there was intuition, right? There was intuition, you've, you've gone through, this is a third child, you've seen your other two kids grow up. There was something, there's something about the intuition there. And and the reason I asked that Esther is because in our community, we get that question a lot. We get that moment a lot. It doesn't necessarily happen with a one-year-old, but it happens maybe for themselves, maybe for your parent, that moment of like, you just know something is off and yet the healthcare system can't find it, you're getting dismissed. Can you talk a little bit more about intuition? Because I feel as though well in that moment, there was something else happening where you, you, you walked in, you're like, I'm not leaving until this is, until I have an answer. There was something in there that made you do that, right? So can you talk a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that as a parent, you, you, know. you know when something's wrong. Um, and I think that often we're like, okay, well that person's a doctor, that person's an expert. So we have to listen to them. We have to listen because they know the best. And I've learned from this experience that you really have to trust your intuition because you, 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 I, I feel like I knew, I knew what was going on. I didn't know it was cancer because that wasn't in my vocabulary, um, but I knew something was terribly wrong. And I found my voice in mm. through that, this experience. I mean, now I will always speak up for what I feel was right. I think I was much more meek. I mean, society that I can go in. To a long, you know, thing around what how uh, women are taught to be and to defer to authority and to defer to the experts. I don't do that anymore. Um, I think through this process, most or all big decisions were perfectly clear to me in an instant,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, which was it, it almost felt like it almost feels like a superpower. But any big medical decision from there on. I knew what my answer was immediately. I did not need mm-hmm. to go into a long, you know, long thought process. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some really hard decisions we needed to make with Andrew. And I really, I didn't even have to take a moment and be like, okay, I listen to to your intuition. Like I just knew, um, for example, this, Andrew's story is actually quite unusual, but um, after his bone marrow transplant, he went into a brief remission and then he relapsed like a month later. And the doctor said, okay, well, let's go do another bone marrow transplant. Um, Now, mind you, and we can talk about this at some point, but I was in isolation for three months. I left my three-year-old and five-year-old, and I was like, I'm just going to focus on getting Andrew well, and I will put everything aside um, until he's well, and then we will all be under the same roof. So it's all going to be worthwhile. It's all going to be for a reason. I knew, my intuition told me, and actually it was reinforced by several experts I talked to, had Andrew done another bone marrow transplant, he would have died at the hospital. You know, I said to the doctors right away, straight straight to them when he relapsed the first time, I said, is there an example of someone who has survived a second transplant and, and their cancer has gone away? Has this cured them? if this is not going to cure him, I am not going to do a second bone marrow transplant. I know how dangerous it is. I know how complicated it is. No one would have had a better match than Will's. So it wasn't like there was any better hope around the corner. Um, And our doctors were wonderful. And of course, you know, I, I have a husband and he's wonderful, Dan. And so he actually you know, I shared with him my case and what I thought, and he needed a few more days to process it because it is a very quick decision to make right away. Um, but we were on 100% on the same page. And we said to the doctors and nurses, thank you so much. Like, we're so grateful, um, but we're bringing Andrew home because our goal in all of this was to have our family under a five under the same roof. And if there's no hope for a cure at this point, we want him to be with his siblings and we want to all be together. Um, so we put him in hospice care at home. Um, And he was near death. Do you remember that? Do you remember that time? And we actually had to tell the kids he was gonna die because he looked like he was gonna die. And everyone told us he was gonna die. So this, this is the summer of 26, 26,
2: no, 2015,
1: 2015. He was diagnosed December, 2014. So at this point, it's the summer of 2015. And um, so we took him off of, we just put him on all the, you know, pain, medication, opioids. I was giving it to him around the clock. Um, We had bought a new house because a long story, but there was construction happening across the street from our old house and construction is the most dangerous thing possible for an immunocompromised person. Um, And we wanted to move to a home where Andrew could live a life um, without having to be in the outside world. So we bought a gated house with a little pool and a little play- we built a little playground for him. Um, so that was kind of our little oasis and we were living there, but we didn't, we had had a room designated for Andrew and we decided not to have him move into that room. So he was, his crib was in our closet. We just like didn't want him to be in this room that we knew he wasn't going to get to actually live in. Um, so from there, yeah, he, he kept going downhill, kept going downhill. And then all of a sudden over, we didn't go to the hospital to do any tests during that time. And then probably by about August, 2015, he started kind of like magically getting better. He was started sitting up again. He started eating more. He started crawling again because remember he had crawled once and mm-hmm. he stopped crawling then he was crying again, he started standing up and walking. And we were like, what the heck is going on? So then we reach out to our doctors and we're like, look, like we're sending them videos. Um, you know, he hasn't had any additional treatment. And um, so we were like, we will bring him back in to do uh, you know, a bone marrow biopsy, just to see what his cancer levels are at this time. So they had a data point. Uh, and then it was, it was the end of October, 2015. I brought him in, I think it was Halloween. And um, he was in remission. Yeah. So somehow the belief is that Wills' cells in Andrew's body were, would not let the cancer win. You know, I hate that winning, losing analogy. But basically, you know, Wills' cells were fighting Andrew's residual cancer cells in his body and put him back into remission. So I guess the story is here, had I not listened to my intuition and had let the doctors continue to treat Andrew and done more chemo and done another bone marrow Mm -hmm. transplant, Wills' cells would not have given Andrew that Mm -hmm. bonus time. Mm -hmm. Now I knew that wasn't gonna be forever even though everyone thought it was. They were all celebrating. I was as anxious as you possibly can be for that whole time he was in remission. Um, And then he did relapse ultimately in August 2016. And then he passed in November, 2016. Wow.
0: And there was no treatment between summer of 2015 and 2016. So remission, no treatment.
1: There was actually no treatment between March of 2015. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was getting mm-hmm. um, immunosuppressants, mm-hmm. but the bone marrow transplant, Itself, I mean, put the cancer aside, was extremely successful. Mm-hmm. They actually, the doctors say that the ideal bone marrow donor would be a boy between the ages of five and 12 because their cells are just replicating like crazy. Yeah. Um, and Wills's cells were obviously quite compatible
2: with Andrews. So he was off of immunosuppressants quite early. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't know the specific timeline, but looking back, the transplant we, st- we still have it, like, we remember the date, February 10th, and it was 2015. It, it's kind of incredible that he was able to be off of treatment by March of that same year.
1: Yeah, I mean, a bunch of infusions and things, but for the most part, yeah. The chemo mm-hmm. and all that. Because that idea with the bone marrow transplant is that the infused cells are going to be the treatment. It's pretty amazing.
0: Uh, I'm going to go to a fairly tricky area, so if you guys don't want to talk about it, just stop me and we, we won't go there, okay? Um, we've had a couple of episodes where we talk about death and mortality, and I think it's just a hard thing in general, and in the cancer community, it is, uh, for me, very surprisingly polarizing. There are people who are willing to talk about it and acknowledge it and share their belief structures, faith structures, how they navigate. And then there are people who just, it just doesn't work for them. But I heard you mention um, that you bring Andrew home and you had to tell your three-year-old and your five-year-old that he was going to die. I think it, death is hard for anyone, but that conversation, I I don't even know how you, how you approach that. If you're willing to talk about it, In terms of how you did it, Esther, and then what's your recall of it, if anything? Um, I'm sure there are lots of people who would appreciate that.
2: I actually
1: feel feel very comfortable talking about it. I feel like people don't talk about it enough, actually, because it is part of life. I feel like in our American society, especially, it's so taboo. So mind you, not only were we telling our kids that Andrew was going to die, but we were fully aware that he was going to die in front of their eyes. Remember, he's at home. Um, And that was a very conscious decision because we felt like this is part of life. This is your brother. We're not gonna hide him away from you and he's gonna disappear behind closed doors and you'll never see him again. Um, We wanted our whole family to be part of the process. And we also really believed in the hospice care, the palliative care that like those nurses, they are like angels from heaven. Um, I think that ushering someone into death is like the most amazing um, thing a human can do and the most, uh, to let help someone die with dignity, um, is just, it's God's work. Um, in terms of telling the kids, so we actually remember we had to tell them twice. So we had to tell them the first time Andrew was in hospice care, and then he had a second hospice care stint. So then we had to tell, we'd explain the situation, why he was magically getting better. And then we had to tell them again. Um, so it's, can't really get worse than that. We had an amazing advisor, um, Barbara Sorks, who's the head of palliative care at Lucy Packer Children's Hospital. Um, she was amazing, so we didn't have to just do this on our own. She kind of gave us a lot of you know guidance. Um, but one of the things that she said that will always stick with me is, you know, you tell the facts, but don't um, you don't need to explain, you don't need to over-explain. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to think of the best example. Us as adults, we like read into it, that we tell the child something, and then we have to keep explaining it and over-explaining it and over-explaining it. Um, I have my vision of what happens when someone dies, but I don't need to impose mm-hmm. that on my kids. They have their own mm-hmm. vision. Let them try to figure out in their mind what's happening with Andrew and, and where he's headed and where his spirit is going. If they ask me, I will respond. Um, but basically, the best advice was just to be short. To be hmm. to be direct, to be short, and then if they ask you questions, to respond, but not to overtalk.
0: Hmm. Hmm.
2: Will, do you, do you remember my, this at all? My memories are pretty faint. I I mainly just remember how I felt. I don't know which whether this was Andrew's first or second period of uh, palliative care, but what I remember was they get, they gathered me and Leah on the couch. Leah's my sister who's two years younger than me. And we kind, we kind of understood that something was wrong with our brother. And then when they told us he was going to die, there's a level of processing that when you're five years old, you can't do. So I felt sad. I, I, mm. I felt the grief. But looking back, I wasn't fully processing it. I remember hugging them and Mm -hmm. crying on the couch with Andrew, but it was so much I couldn't process that I just remember the feeling of knowing that he was going to die. And I remember the feeling of hugging my parents and my sister and Andrew and crying because I, I didn't fully understand the weight. But at that age, I felt what I could feel, which was the intense grief. The other thing that was, I actually remember
1: you burying your head in your hood. You had like a little hoodie and you just buried your head in your hood. The other thing that's important to know is, so Andrew was a kid. He was there, right? When we were explaining Mm -hmm. what was happening and Mm -hmm. and he clearly, you know, well, I don't know what he understood, right? People Mm -hmm. say, sometimes doctors or nurses will say, well, a human being knows when they're gonna die, they know. Um, Also at this point he had relapsed, but we didn't know how long it was going Mm -hmm. to be, right? How long the process, Andrew was hysterical. He liked to sing, he liked to dance. He liked to play with um, Disney characters. He loved to dance to Justin Timberlake and put a silly hat on. So like, here we are, we're in this house and we know this really hard, sad thing is about to happen either for the first time or for the second time but Andrew's still Andrew, right? Like Mm -hmm. he's still a kid who has at that point, a few more months of just like being a kid and we're not gonna sit there and cry all day long, right? We are gonna take the time to be emotional and cry. We know that this time is precious and Mm -hmm. it's not gonna last Mm -hmm. forever. Um, But we also have to like go to the park and watch, you know, Mickey
2: Mouse Clubhouse. (laughs) There was a lot of singing while crying and dancing. Well, sobbing because that was mm-hmm. that was like what we yes we knew Andrew was gonna die but also what made him happy while he was still living was doing these joyful things and so there was a big part that was like we needed to experience all this joy with him well but we were still feeling grief and feeling really upset because we knew he was leaving mm-hmm. and it was an interesting it was a really tough balance like a juxtaposition yeah, yeah. I mean I
1: I remember when he was diagnosed, I was like, I am just going to give this kid the best life, the best life he can possibly imagine. Like looking outside of it and thinking, oh my gosh, you're living in isolation with your son in a sterile white hospital room and he's got cords all attached to him. He was one. So he didn't know what, all he wants to do is be with his mom, right? And yeah, it stinks that he's in all this pain and it's horrible and he's got cords, but he doesn't know anything different. So... I felt like my job was to give him, you know, I called it to let me, there's this movie called Life is Beautiful that will always stick with me about um, they're in a concentration camp, a father and he's trying to give his son this like, glorious view of what's happening, you know, to the best of my ability. I watched it so many years ago, but I was like, I'm going to show Andrew that life is beautiful in this little white hospital room Mm -hmm. or, or isolated at home getting, you know, as I'm giving him opioids, like I'm going to make his life and make this room a wonderland. So there was lots of singing, lots of dancing, legos Mm -hmm. crayons like anything that he could do with his limited abilities once he was walking you know that we were going to go outside we were going to go play in his little swing um he loved disney characters Mm -hmm. he loved pop music (laughs) like it was you know you're living in this sad reality but at the other hand you know that his time is limited so it's about fitting as much magic into his life as as we possibly could in that time. Um, He loved graham crackers. He loved chocolate chip cookies. It was like, however many graham, he'd fall asleep with a graham cracker in each hand. It's like, who cares if there's crumbs in your bed? Why does it matter? You love graham crackers. You know, it's a very different view on raising a kid when you know that you're not raising them to, you know, go to their wedding, but you're raising them so that you can look back and say you gave them the best life possible and that you know that they were happy when they were there, you know? (laughs)
0: <laughs> um how have you guys rebuilt life after 2016 because here you are many many years later being incredibly courageous talking about it uh, and sharing your story what is life like today do
2: you want to go first or do well I mean do? I can speak a little from my perspective there was no rebuilding there was no like moving forward in the sense that something happens and then like you have to fix something. For me, it was it was a tough time, but I was also, I was in kindergarten, I was in first grade. And so I was moving through life. I was doing like the activities I was doing with all of this happening at home. And so really there it was tough because I lost my brother. And so I had to do a, t- I had to change my mind and I had to, I, I thought differently. And I, I like, I needed to think differently, but there was no sense of moving forward as if I needed to rebuild something. And so mm-hmm. I ju- I started living afterwards with this understanding of how life is once you die And I started living with the idea that I can't waste a second and I can't not live to the max because I understand how short life can be. And so the big takeaway I had was I needed to live life to the fullest. And so at like a seven-year-old soccer game, I was yelling at my teammates if they weren't running, because to me, it was, why would you not run as hard as you can? Because you might not get to play again. Mm -hmm it's really interesting
1: i think for both of us our our uh, tolerance for people not taking advantage of opportunities that they have Mm -hmm. is very low i think for me um i hate when people complain about fixable problems i'm like stop complaining just fix it you can fix this you don't like your doctor Mm -hmm. switch doctors you don't like your hair go cut it like just don't take like waste this time complaining because you can fix this problem because there are a lot of problems in life you cannot fix. Um, and then you can sit and complain and cry about those things because there are a lot of those things that either haven't come and they will. Um, so just mm-hmm. change what you can when when you can. I mean, we did that during COVID. We just picked up and moved. We had, we had already lived in isolation for, you know, with Andrew. We, at this point, we're living in isolation for six months and we were like, we don't wanna live in this house in isolation anymore. We're going to pick up where's the lowest case of COVID it's on Hawaii. We're going to go to, we're going to go to Hawaii for a little while. (laughs) Um, and we had, fortunately it was, it was something that would work with remote work and whatever it might be. But basically if there's a problem that we can solve, we try to solve it. Um, and we try to maximize for living life to the fullest. I think for me, um, one thing that happened, Andrew died the next month I got pregnant with my daughter, Corey. So that was one thing that happened as we moved forward. And I was really, really careful. I actually didn't want anyone to know for a very long time because I think in our culture, there's a very strong sense of like wanting to just tie everything up in a neat box of like, oh, well she lost a son, but now she's pregnant again. Everything is all better. Um, And it couldn't have been farther from the truth. I think that we called um, her daughter, her name is Corey. We call her, we always called her our happy aunt that like, it was, ha- it was so happy that she came into the world and our life sucked, you know, it was, yeah. and I have a gaping hole that you, I will never fill in my life of this child who was so much a part of me, who is no longer with us. Um, so that's one piece. I, I, we became parents of our fourth mm-hmm. child and, and we often do have to correct people. She's not our third child. She's not our third child. Andrew's our third child. She's our fourth child and she is living. She was not part of our family crew when Andrew was going through all of his suffering and all of his happy times and all of that. So she talks about her brother a lot, but, but one of the challenges is parenting my children, parenting Andrew and his death, parenting my older children, you know, knowing that they lost their brother and then parenting my fourth child who knows she wasn't part. She didn't get to know Andrew. So it's something, it's almost like the four Mm -hmm. of us, my husband, Wills, me, and Leah, like experience. We always say we have all this baggage, but we also had the joy of knowing Andrew and she has no baggage. She's the most carefree, wild and crazy little kid you can meet. Um, But she didn't get the honor of knowing Andrew. And and I know that she talks about him a lot and she wishes that she did. So it's just, Mm -hmm. it's complicated. Um, One of the, they, one of the expressions I actually hate um, that people talk about when you've been through something horrible is bouncing forward it's like oh you've been through this horrible thing but you know you can bounce forward look at all these people who have created this amazing life or started these foundations or ran these ultra marathons after all that they've suffered like you too can be that person and I hate it because I feel like one I have been destroyed by I'm full of trauma I'm full of grief I what's wrong? Why can't just surviving be heroic? Like, why do I need to like go start this amazing company and be the CEO? We have done things. We have given back to the world. Like I felt really strongly our hospital did not have a music therapy program. And I felt that that was a hole, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in the program because Andrew could have really, really benefited from a music therapist. So we helped start a music therapy program at our hospital. Does that mean that I bounce forward and I've done all these amazing things? No, like I'm just trying to make the world a better place for kids and families who have been in our situation. Um, and we are surviving. We're surviving as best we can. We are not taking a moment for granted. Like I said, we try to live life to the fullest. We always, you know, our question and we always ask ourselves is why would we not do this? Why would yeah. we not take advantage of this opportunity mm-hmm. um, when the kids have extracurriculars Wills is really into soccer, Lee isn't really into dance. Like I love, to explore where that can take us because, you know, Mm -hmm. Andrew didn't have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to help my kids, you know, explore whatever opportunities are available provided Mm -hmm. they want to do them. Um, Mm -hmm. So in terms of surviving and moving, you know, I, I look at it as moving forward. I look at it that, you know, when you talk about rebuilding, the rubble is still right under my feet grief never goes away. And I think that, um, there are better days and there are harder days. There are days where I'm feeling fine and all of a sudden, like the grief starts, you know, trickling through my bones. And I say to myself, okay, like I'll have to look at the calendar and be like, okay, Oh, right. You know, in 2016 at this time, Andrew had just, we got news. He had just relapsed or, you know, there are times when I don't even consciously want to be, um, sad or I don't consciously want to just stay in my bed all day. And then I'm like, okay, well, my body's mm-hmm. telling me that I'm going to stay in bed all day. You know? So, so even this many years later, it's mm-hmm. not a trajectory that just goes up or at oh, all. This was a horrible time and now it's going to get better from here. It's really, really complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, even my daughter will say, Lee, Corey, sorry. Our do- mm-hmm. She'll say, oh, well, my, my friend told me that, um, I don't have another brother because he's not, he's not alive. I don't have another brother because he's, he's not at your house. He's not my house. And then that'll throw me back. And I'll be like, okay, talk to the therapist, talk to the doctor. Like, what do I tell her? Of course she is a brother. Of course this other kid, you know, this other kid, it's not this child's fault. Like mm-hmm. kids are, kids are really, um, you know, kids are not abstract, yeah. you know, they're very, yeah. so, okay, how do I work through this? So she's not mad at this friend, but we help her friend understand But we help her understand. that like, Yes, her brother does exist. He's just not here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's it's a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. It's ups and downs. There's also a lot of challenges with friends and with family that just want you to get over it. You know, I had someone tell me when I was pregnant with Corey and Andrea died six months before. You know, you're not meeting my needs in our relationship, and it's like uh, I can barely <laughs> meet my own needs.
2: Oh my god! You know, it, so,
1: it, but then I need to be really Ooh. like understanding that everyone's coming from their own perspective and. Maybe I'm just yeah I I can't be there for them I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> can we can we actually talk about that because I I think the the community piece is I think it's really hard I think it's hard for a lot of people who go through the cancer experience and clearly very very different than in, in your specific story but I, I'd love a little bit I'd love for you to talk about it but more Essa but also was for you to talk about it because I. I don't meet a lot of 14 year olds in general, just cause I'm not 14, I don't have kids, but I do do Taekwondo and end up meeting a lot of 14 year olds through my Taekwondo school. Don't ask me, I, I do practice with teenagers. Uh, and just to be super clear, I'm the one that gets beaten up. But um, <laughs> I, I, you are incredibly, incredibly ahead of imagining most 14 year olds. In your life perspective, in the way you make decisions, in the way you choose your moments. How, how do you how do you navigate that? Does that ever come up for you?
2: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I That touches on something that I experienced a lot where I had to grow up really quickly when I was five. And so now when I'm 14, there's so many kids who are making irresponsible decisions or being so worried about this homework assignment or fitting in with this friend group. And a lot of this stuff seems pretty irrational to me. And in some ways I wish I didn't learn half of this Mm -hmm. stuff. And I was learning how to deal with some of this hard stuff now because no five-year-old should have to mature at the rate I matured. I look at my five-year-old sister now and it's almost, it's unthinkable. The difference between her when she was five and me, when I was five and what Mm -hmm. we were going through. And the biggest thing I notice when I'm around other 14-year-olds is there's just there's not sometimes an understanding of what's important, and there's not a level of maturity and like I said, taking every opportunity because you might not get another opportunity. When you're 14, it seems like you're young and you have a, like a hundred years to go do whatever you want to do, and a lot of them then think okay, then that means for the next year, I, I don't really need to care about school. I don't need to work on anything. And so it's frustrating when I'm with kids on my soccer team at school on a group project, and I, I'm trying to convey the message to them that you should take this opportunity because you might not get another opportunity
0: uh yeah, do you feel lonely right? for yeah middle school
1: it's not it's, normal. It's not easy Something to tell a middle,
0: middle schooler school or that
1: school. <laughs> wills cares about everything very deeply including your sisters yeah. like he's probably the most protective big brother you can possibly imagine
2: and you know There's i an element of not i wasn't when i was five my brother was like taken away from me and i at the time i wasn't i i grew into being this protective brother because in some ways that's like something that happened in the aftermath and as the process occurred because Mm -hmm. i started to realize that like i need i really felt a need to protect my family because i didn't know and i felt this worry that they would be taken away just like how andrew died yeah i think Mm -hmm. that uh that's wills loves so much like
1: he's always hugging and squeezing they're like leave me alone um but you're very very protective yeah. over your yeah. family too it is it is there was when will started 6th grade you know we said we talked to wills and his teachers and we're like we actually think you should tell your classmates about what happened to your brother because he was in a new school oh. and i was like i think that would help them understand you more because Andrew's life and his death is such a part of who y'all are and our personalities and our, you know, our yes. behavior and, and all of that. And I know it was hard for you, but you did it. Yeah. And that was really yeah. amazing. And I think it really did like help kids understand mm-hmm. where you were coming from a little bit more.
2: Yeah, um, certainly. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times tell just, especially for kids who aren't super mature, if you're in sixth grade. <laughs> so telling someone like, where you're coming from so they have empathy Mm -hmm. and then they don't even if they don't understand how Mm -hmm. that bubbles up at the surface understanding that that's like something that affected me when i was young and that shaped Mm -hmm. who i am ended up being pretty helpful even Mm -hmm. if they didn't change their like everyday behavior yeah i think the community piece is really hard because i
1: think that um you know, up until the time that Andrew was diagnosed, I was young. I was 34 when Andrew was diagnosed. Um, I think nowadays, like I'm in my forties now, people have dealt with a lot of hard things. A lot of people have dealt with hard things. Right. But nine years ago, they actually hadn't. And most people hadn't, I mean, maybe some, or if they had, they didn't want to talk about it, but it wasn't something that the whole community knew about our entire community knew about what was happening with Andrew. They were horrified by it. And I know this and I'll give some examples, but I think that we were living in the Bay area. Dan and I went to good college. Like we believed that if you just work hard enough, everything will work out the way you want it to work because that's the way it's supposed to be. Right. Type a, like you work hard and, and you can accomplish anything you set out to. We had not only did we both have great jobs that we were very happy about and love, but like, we had our three kids. I wanted three kids. We had our three kids in a row, each two years apart. That was like exactly the way I had planned it to be. Um, and then all of a sudden and out of the blue, this like bomb goes off in our family and, and our son is in such excruciating pain. So I'd say one, nobody, no one could face the concept that our, that Andrew was in so much pain and that I couldn't, what parent can't make their child's pain go away? So there was that. We were in the hospital. We weren't leaving the hospital for a very long time. Right. Like, oh, well, can't you just pay someone something and then your kids magically cured? Whatever. No, not possible. Cancer does not discriminate. It can happen to anyone. Um, well, do you have cancer in your family? Because people want to like get the green, you know, the that that it won't happen to them because we have cancer in our family. No, we do not have cancer in our family. We definitely didn't have a history of leukemia. Mm -hmm. And according to the doctors, and, you know, there's so much research to be had, Mm -hmm. you know, leukemia is more of a chance event, especially this extremely rare form of AML in a baby. Usually AML shows up in adults. Um, I was a, I worked in pediatric nutrition. No, I did not give my kid chemicals all day long. But people wanted like Mm -hmm. answers as to why. And Mm -hmm. the truth of the matter was there was no reason why it just sucked, you know, like bad things can happen to you that you don't expect. Um, And then I was, I went from, like I said, being a very social person to being in isolation in the hospital. But then when Andrew got out of the hospital, I had to be, I was thrust back into the real world right away because I had a five-year-old and a three-year-old and I had to take my three-year-old to dance class. She had been without, her mom hadn't taken her in so many months. I had to take kids to preschool drop off. And to explain like the way people look at you differently Um, there were some friends that I like, couldn't even, uh, I didn't make eye contact with because they hadn't been supportive during that time. And I just Mm -hmm. like, couldn't face it because I lived through this hell and they weren't there. Mm -hmm. So there was that, but I think also I was trying to think what the word is of like, that it was almost like I was a symbol of like Mm -hmm. how horrible things can happen to you when you, when you have no control over them. And I think that was really hard for people to process. So I did have amazing friends who stood by me through it all, Mm -hmm. Um, but I also was, people averted their eyes because they just didn't know what to say to me. Um, And I was prepared for that, Um, but it was hard. It was hard. Like you just look at the world differently. You look at people differently and you, Mm -hmm. I often feel that people know what to do for someone who's in crisis either because they've already been in crisis themselves or because they just inherently know. And that's, they're at 34, like that's the minority of the population. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm not bitter about it because I understand. Like, I think when I had friends that were in crisis before any of this happened, I didn't know the best way to help them. I was really quick to say, oh, like, let me know if you need anything. Well, that's like the absolute worst thing to say to somebody who is completely out of control. Their life is, you know, falling apart. Um, but I said those things too. So I think I have some degree of understanding about it, but, Mm -hmm. um, being part of society immediately after this happened, like was extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. And then one other thing, sorry, I can go on forever. We have this Facebook group, which was amazing because people, instead of people constantly checking in with us, what's going on, I just posted everything. Sometimes Mm -hmm. multiple times a day, videos from inside the hospital room. But as a result, I became kind of a, a celebrity for the wrong reason. So I all, there were also a lot of people from all over the country, friends of friends, friends of my family who thought they knew me really well, um, inside and out, or they thought they knew Andrew's story really well. And the part that was hard was like, no, you actually don't know me at all. Like I am choosing and curating when I'm posting. It actually was way worse than what I posted. So if you think our Facebook page is hard to, stomach, mm-hmm. like, you should only know what was going on in my life, but you really don't know me that well. Mm-hmm. And it was really bad. What about now, Esther? About being in the real world? Yeah. Um, You know, I can play the game. That's what I say. I, can, <laughs> I was a complete extrovert before. I needed, you know, I mean, the definition yeah. of extrovert is you need to, you get your energy from being around other people. I am definitely an introvert now. Mm-hmm. Like, I will go out, I can do the you know, some, this, yeah. the stupid conversation that's not, you know, about yeah. silly, stupid things. Um, I can do it now. I couldn't do it for years. I was like, I just can't go to this. I'm not going to a party. I, like, I don't want to talk about silly things. Um, now I can do it, but I definitely need to come back and have my time to like gain energy mm. on my own. And then I do have the moments where I'm like, Oh my gosh, I've been through all of this. It's like I've been through a war and I'm still standing Wow. Yeah. How did that happen? Um, and wow, my life is really different from all these people. But at the same time, the older I get, the more people who, are deal- who have dealt with hard things or who have dealt with a cancer diagnosis or who have dealt with death of family members or sudden things happening. So I tend to gravitate towards those people um, because I will only have relationships with people if they're on in a deep, authentic way
0: yeah I, I supremely relate to that. I think your, I think your summary of you've learned how to play the game again is so apt. It's so apt. I, I think that uh, this is a topic that I personally struggle with a lot because i I struggle with the uh, you know have a silly conversation. I can do a little bit of it right now, but it's in small doses, uh, and then I definitely need the okay fine, all right, I'm not talking to anybody for three days. <laughs> Please leave me alone moments. Yeah, and... Well, what's
1: also interesting is I went to, so I was working full time. And then when Andrew was diagnosed, I literally left my office and never went back. So something that I'm, my goal is, it's taken me this long, right. Is to start rebuilding my career. Um, but I was recently, or maybe not so recently in a little course where people were like changing cr- tra- career trajectories yeah. and whatnot. And everyone was telling their story. Yeah. And, you know, you, sometimes I'm not aware of like what the general public can take because like Andrew dying is just part of my life. So here I am. I'm like, yeah, well I was working full time and I had three kids and then my son was diagnosed with cancer and then he died. And like, and the zoom room is just like crickets. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, okay. Not everyone likes to talk about really heavy things, but that's why I'm here. So do you want me to make up some silly reason why, or, um, can why can't you take it? You know? So I also have to be much more, aware of like it, when who I'm around like I always say if I'm meeting a new friend and I'm committed to the relationship lasting I tell them about Andrew right away because I'm like if you want to know me this is something that's really important I know it's really sad often people start tearing up I'm like yes but this is my life and it's important that you know yeah. um, with strangers I need to be more discerning and that was a situation where I don't know I maybe I wasn't as discerning as I should have been
0: <laughs> I definitely related that too I very much relate <laughs> I think a part of me wants to come up with like a fake job and a fake, fake identity. It's like, so in in the moments where like, I really just, either I'm going to say it and it's going to land really badly, or I just don't want to, I don't want to engage in that sort of part of my life. I almost need like a fake persona to come up with. So not that yet, guys, but maybe. Yeah, well,
1: it's interesting. Like, so, or you can take that advice of like, just answer the question. Like, do you Uh work? Yes. Right? (laughs) I mean, when I was in the hospital with Corey, my son had died nine months before and people are, and all the nurses come in, oh yay, is this your first? And in most cases I was like, no, she's my fourth. My third just died. We spent all this time, you know, and then everyone starts sobbing. And then you're having, like, I'm trying to comfort that, the nurse in the hospital when I've just had a newborn baby. (laughs) So I probably should have just
2: said no. <laughs> There's definitely an aspect of when we're in public, sometimes like I was at we were in the grocery store line checking out, and I mm-hmm. I have my sister who's five, me and my mom, and the grocery store cashier is like, Oh, how many kids do you have? She's so sweet. And it's a scenario where when someone asks you that question, you know what the answer is in your brain, but you don't want to have that conversation with the grocery store cashier. And so we mm-hmm. say three, but that's not, it's not how we feel. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a tough moment that like, you mm-hmm. don't really think about until you actually go through that moment. And it was those moments now are really like a portal back to, to when mm-hmm. Andrew had cancer or, and just a reflecting point. We've actually, as a
1: family had some of the, those discussions of like, if someone asks you how many siblings you have and you have two, you're not, um, you're not discounting Andrew. Don't worry. Like we know that, you know, Andrew existed and that he exists as part of our family. So as long, so you know that we know that, but we don't want to make the cashier cry today. So it's okay to say Mm -hmm. you have two siblings or, you know, as a parent, that's a question people ask all the time. And I had said to my husband, Dan, for a while after Andrew died, I was like, you don't understand how much work it is because he got to go to his office. Right. And I mm-hmm. had to be out in the big, bad world. I was like, every time someone asks me that question mm-hmm. and when you're pregnant and when you have a baby, cause that was happening after Andrew died, it's like, it's mm-hmm. so challenging. It's just, it, it makes being out in the world mm-hmm. so painful. Mm -hmm. because every single time you have to assess the relationship and decide how much you want to tell them at that given moment. But I have kind of resolved myself to say, I'll tell people Mm -hmm. I have three kids at home because I have three kids at home, you know? And then that's like a nice um, way to kind of, I don't know, answer the question, be true to Andrew, be true to myself.
0: Hmm. Uh, You know, usually at the end of these podcasts, I summarize things. I'll ask like a closing question And i was going back and forth uh on what a closing question feels like and what it feels right and i'm gonna try it here if it doesn't feel right guys come up with a different closing question okay so (laughs) just just change the question Uh so one of the questions i i resort to a lot is magic wand but i won't do that when i'm gonna tweak it for you um i'll tell you one of the exercises i did for myself and uh this was eh, probably i was still in treatment i had infusions for about 18 months uh, I did not have a, like, I had a, for lack of a better word, and it's a horrible thing to say, but a good cancer, uh, which a lot of people do not relate to. But eh, early stage breast cancer, your prognosis is good. Like, I mean, again, probability speaking, like, there are absolutely outliers and there are absolute situations where that's not true. But probability is generally speaking good. But it's 18 months after treatment, then 10 years of treatment after that. That's just a long, long road. Anyway, so one of the questions that I was grappling with for my own mortality was, how do you live your life when you have limited time? The problem is you don't know, you don't really know how much time you have, right? You have probabilities, but eh, you can't really rely on that. You can't really depend on that. The data is kind of spotty when it comes to early stage breast cancer in young women. It's very low, very low enrollment rates, right? So just, it's not, it's not a solid enough foundation, but the exercise I did was I asked myself how I would live if I got less than a year, if I got two years, five years, ten years. And kind of came up with different answers. And I actually began to see that, for me, they were the same answer, just different variations uh, of it. And I now live my life by that definition and that design. And so the question for you is, given what you guys have gone through, whatever time frame makes sense to you, How do you see, how do you, how do you live your life? Like what's the philosophy? One of one, one you shared with us, right? You already shared it, but is anything else in there? I
2: I mean, I, I, I can, I can reflect on what I've said before on the idea that you don't want to waste opportunities. And because I saw that from when I was five, that's kind of been how I live my life since with the idea that, You never know how much time you're having left. And as a family, we also try to experience everything. We try to, if there's an experience that is possible, instead of closing it off, we want to push and see if we can do it. And so if I had one, two, five, ten years left to live, I wouldn't change much. I would maybe, there's some things that of course you have to do because in 10 years, it'll matter. But for the most part, like the method the methodology that I live life with would not be that different. It would be the idea that I want to live without any regrets and I want to do everything to the fullest. So then if I look back, there's no regrets I have. Yeah, I think that that's, I think
1: we made a pretty conscious decision, Dan and I, like a while back. I don't even know if it was like as conscious as we think, but um, to really, really enjoy life. So, you know, we lived in isolation for all that time with Andrew Mm -hmm. and I used to fantasize about, you know, going to Aulani, the Disney resort in Hawaii when he was little, when he was in a hospital. And the minute he was in remission, we were like, we're going to Hawaii. We're going to take him. Mm -hmm. And that has really rang true. Like after Mm -hmm. he passed, we went to Australia. We've done a ton of international travel. Like there's not a school break that we don't Decide to take advantage of another adventure opportunity that we yeah. haven't yet gotten to see. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that we try to spend as much time together as a family. Um, I think that something that I've learned, and, and I know this is kind of a, a little bit off track, is when you've ushered a child into through into you know the next realm, wherever that is, you learn that the body is just a vessel, right? You learn that like. The, all the time people spend focused on their appearance and their weight and their, you know, all the things that put, make people unhappy, you know, I can't eat this. I can't do that. People are really into like, at least in our culture, like suffering that suffering makes you better that suffering makes you stronger. Like maybe we've, because we've already suffered so much. Um, I, I, just believe that like, do what makes you happy and enjoy the moment. I don't care about the prestige of a job or a board or anything like that. I constantly check in with myself and I say, okay, is this true to who I am? Is this the way I want to spend my time? Is this what I'm passionate about? Um, But I feel really proud of the little life that we have built, you know, outside of this, outside as we've, you know, moved forward from our experience with Andrew. I also feel like our life just, it is what it is, right? And not to look back with regrets at all. Absolutely. So like everything that we experienced with Andrew, I don't look back at the what ifs mm-hmm. and the regrets because it's just what happened. And it's the way life was, and we did the best that we could, and we're proud of the life that we gave Andrew. And like our daughter, so it was my husband and my 17th anniversary yesterday, and my five-year-old turned to me, she gave me a hug. She's like, thank you for giving me life, mom. Hey. And I had this reflective moment of like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know if, and she'll she'll listen to this one day, but like, if Andrew had not died, I don't know if she would be her. We, We might have another child, but I don't know if she would be her, but I don't look back and say, oh, well, because Andrew died, Corey came into life. So everything's great. You know, I just look at it that it is what it is. And I'm grateful for what we have, and I'm grateful for what we had with Andrew, yeah. and life is hard and it's complicated, yeah. um, but I'm proud of, of where we are right now. I don't know if that answers your question. That's
0: but... a beautiful answer. I love it. Guys, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I you. am walking away with a very, very full heart. So I well, really so appreciate you guys sharing your story. Yeah, thank you. And Will's, you are a remarkable, remarkable 14-year-old and i i really i cannot wait to see what you do with your time so definitely keep us posted even if that's soccer whatever it is you tell me because i have a i have a feeling that you're gonna live life and really squeeze out the juices over there so yeah definitely let us know what you do awesome
1: thank you so much Thank thank you guys
0: This podcast, show notes and newsletter is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or any materials linked from this blog is at the user's own risk. The content here is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.